0: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
1: Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong, where one week after outdoor barbecues were decriminalised, Our city is awash with banking executives, fintech bros and the return of the international sporting and drinking event known as the Rugby Sevens. And while Hong Kong's chief executive John Lee is declaring the city is open for business, for North Korean leader Kim Jong Un it seems to be more of a case of open fire. This is what it sounds like when you're riding a train in Japan and North Korea launches an intercontinental ballistic missile the Tokyo government thinks is coming your way. Turns out it was a false alarm. Actually, Japan's defense minister said the government had lost track of the ICBM over the Sea of Japan and it did not in fact fly over the country. But that was just one of 26 missiles North Korea had launched within just 48 hours on Wednesday and Thursday this week. And this featured much more in news headlines than the news on Monday that the US and South Korea had begun one of their largest joint military drills ever its Operation Vigilant Storm involving hundreds of warplanes and thousands of troops just off the Korean Peninsula. Interestingly, China's Foreign Affairs spokesman Zhao Lijian had no comment on the plethora of projectiles being launched out of North Korea, but he had a lot to say about matters much further south, talking about the U.S. announcing its plans to deploy six of its long-range B-52 bombers at an Australian Air Force base near Darwin. Interestingly these bombers are consistently described as nuclear capable, but what's rarely mentioned is Australia is a signatory to the Treaty of Rarotonga, signed back in 1985, which established a nuclear weapons free zone in the South Pacific. This is what Zhao Lijian had to say in response to the news of
2: B-52s. Such a move by the US and Australia escalates regional tensions, gravely undermines regional peace and stability, and may trigger an arms race in the region. China urges parties concerned to abandon the outdated Cold War zero-sum mentality and narrow geopolitical mindset.
1: Elsewhere around the world, we had the news that Canada had joined the US-led Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, otherwise known as the IPEF, in a week where the Trudeau government ordered three Chinese firms to divest from three lithium mining companies based in Canada. Meanwhile in Hainan, Foreign Minister Wang Yi was asking the nations of the world to jointly resist the USA. His pre-recorded address was to an audience of scholars from 20 different countries, called the Symposium on Global Maritime Cooperation and Ocean Governance. There was no mention of the Nine-Dash Line and The Hague, but he certainly took aim at Joe Biden's IPEF. And mention of Joe Biden leads me to the big news coming our way in this region, a trio of major geopolitical summit meetings in Southeast Asia. It starts next week, when we have the ASEAN meeting being held in Cambodia. Two days after that finishes, we have the G20 meeting in Bali, promising a cavalcade of exciting meetings, beginning with the appearance of Vladimir Putin, and a heavily hinted possibility of a one-to-one between Presidents Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. And that's on top of reports that Tokyo and Beijing are planning a meeting between Xi and Fumio Kishida on the sidelines of the G20. And just two days after the traditional awkward G20 group photo, there will be another major summit meeting the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, otherwise known as APEC, being held in Bangkok. We're calling in our Asia desk editor Bhavan Jaypragas to preview what's on the agenda at the ASEAN, starting with the appearance of Joe Biden. Given the same day the ASEAN summit starts, his country votes in national midterm elections that will determine his government's direction for the remainder of his term. After we hear from Baban, we're going to hear from our colleague on the political economy desk, Candy Wong. We're still unpacking details from the 20th Party Congress speeches, but she's picked up on an interesting reference about Beijing encouraging the growth of private security firms. It's all about policing its belt and road projects around the world. Also, she's been reporting on a fascinating meeting between local officials and American multinational companies working in China. So much happening, so much to talk about, let's get amongst it. Bhavan Jay Pragas is our Asia Desk Editor and is gearing up for a somewhat busy three weeks as he and his team get across these major geopolitical summits in our region. Bhavan, I'm thinking this is the last time you'll have any spare time for a while. Welcome back.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's going to be a busy November for us. Three big summits over a span of 11 days. And in the background, there's also a, a, the Malaysian elections happening on November 19th. So yes, the entire Asia Desk team will be very busy this month.
1: Well, as you say, three big events coming up. Global headlines are going to be dominated by the G20 in Bali in a fortnight. But I want to talk about this ASEAN conference in Cambodia next week. I feel like every other week throughout this year, we've reported on another high-level delegation from the US seeking to build deeper ties with Southeast Asia. But Cambodia is seen as one of the most pro-China countries in Southeast Asia. How important is this meeting in this US-China competition for friends and allies in Southeast Asia?
2: Yes, so the ASEAN summit is being held in Cambodia this year because Cambodia is the chair of the bloc. The chairmanship of ASEAN is rotated through its 10 members. This meeting will be closely watched because we want to see what the ASEAN bloc will say about the Myanmar issue. Uh, It's been going on since uh, the coup last February, ASEAN has been tasked by the international community to spearhead efforts to bring Myanmar back to the path to democracy. What we have seen, however, is the five-point consensus that was forged in April of 2021.
1: And I want to talk about Myanmar in detail in just a second. But as they say, the optics of this meeting, we're seeing Joe Biden attending in person. Does that sort of suggest how much he wants to get into the game in Southeast Asian politics?
2: Yes, it came as a surprise, uh, and it was only announced recently that that President Biden will attend the ASEAN Summit. It's not all the time that the US President attends these year-end summits. So it's clear that the Biden administration wants to, you know, emphasise its ASEAN policy that it views the region as important in, in its diplomatic calculations. Usually the, the China sends its Premier, Russia sends its Prime Minister to the East Asia Summit that comes along with the ASEAN Summit at the end of the year. The president being there definitely adds heft to the US delegation. As they say in, in ASEAN circles, showing up matters when it comes to Southeast Asian diplomacy. But at the same time, Chinese economic diplomacy, Chinese investments in the region has continued through the pandemic. Countries have buttressed their trade ties with Beijing, even as they, they battled the pandemic. What has the US done? US has come up with several initiatives, the Blue Dot Network and so on. But, you know, it's still quite nebulous. I mean, is the money on the table or not? I don't think so.
1: Well, that's a great point you raise because I'm thinking of, you know, previous diplomatic missions from the US to this part of the world, they've focused a lot on, we've got vaccines that work, you know, this kind of thing. Well, we're at this late stage of the pandemic now. You've got a major rail line being built in Laos with Chinese money, a major rail line being built in Indonesia with Chinese money. You've got this military base may not be being expanded significantly with Chinese support, as you say, is the money on the table? Where is the US right now in its status in the ASEAN nations?
2: Right. They have touted the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework as the kind of counter to what China is doing on this front. And the, the projects that you mentioned, these are all projects that have full buy-in from the local principles. So the governments have gone in to these deals with their eyes open, right? And they will argue that they, that they need the infrastructure, they need the jobs that come along with these projects. So on this front, you know, what kind of job creation is the US doing in Southeast Asia? You cannot keep saying that these Chinese deals are being done in a translucent manner, that they need to be more transparent because the principals in these places, at least the ones that need to fight elections, will say, look, we'll do deals, we'll take investments from any outside party that is putting money on the table and going to create jobs. And we saw a very significant moment when the first leader from
1: another country to fly to Beijing to congratulate Xi Jinping on his unprecedented third term was Wen Fu Trong, the president of Vietnam. But let's get back to ASEAN. Cambodia's president, Hun Sen, is ending his tenure as the chair of ASEAN, which itself is a complex issue. But you mentioned Myanmar, this humanitarian crisis, this ongoing disaster that's looming over this meeting next week. Will the military junta that overthrew the elected government in February get a seat at the table for next week's meeting?
2: Most certainly, Senior General Minong Lang will not be at the ASEAN summit. That's because of the consensus that the bloc forged last year, just around this time, actually, in November, when they said that Because of the troubles in Myanmar, they would temporarily suspend high-level political representation of Myanmar at the summit. But senior foreign ministry officials are allowed to be attending ASEAN summits and other related meetings. What kind of developments are we expecting on the Myanmar front next week? Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see anything major ASEAN was tasked in April of 2021 to be at the forefront of dealing with the post-coup crisis, trying to get Min Ong Lai to step back from what he has done, release the political prisoners, including uh, Dao Aung San Suu Kyi. He has not shown any signs of wanting to comply with that, uh, now seeming to want to run as president When they call elections next year, no one believes that those elections are going to be free and fair. The National League for Democracy will probably not be allowed to run. Half of their people are in jail. Half of them are in exile. The country is in civil strife across the board. There are questions of whether the Tatmadaw, the the, the military, has control over much of the country. They have control over the urban parts, including Yangon and Epidao and so on. But on the peripheries, they are fighting on many fronts. So it's a real mess, Myanmar. Uh, What kind of commitment or interest does ASEAN have in really solving this issue? We have seen a lot of strong comments from Indonesia, from Malaysia, from Singapore, the Philippines to a certain extent, saying that this is a very serious existential issue for ASEAN. We need to solve it. But what are the concrete actions? They have released statements. They have suspended high-level political representation of Myanmar at meetings, the next step really that they should be contemplating but seems to be off the table is kicking Myanmar out. The nine ASEAN countries, including Laos and Cambodia, which are seen as being very close to China, must agree. At least that is the the unspoken rule, right? So there are 10 members. The remaining nine must fully agree to kick a member out or suspend membership. That means no... Foreign Ministry official, no representation whatsoever at ASEAN meetings. You want to punish, then go all the way now. Because the death toll now, the intransigence, you know, it's in my mind, this is the logical next step. But unfortunately, if you see the comments coming out of the regional capitals, nobody is going there because one of the unspoken rules is that you do not interfere in domestic affairs. And if you do this, there is fear that, you know, it's a slippery slope kind of action, right? If you can kick someone out, kick Myanmar out, then what about us next time, right?
1: Bavan, you mentioned a number of countries there that had had something to say about the situation in Myanmar, but not the significant neighbour on the northeastern border of Myanmar, China. How can you sum up their kind of response this year? And what are we expecting to see and or hear from China next
2: week at the ASEAN meeting? China, of course, is a key partner of ASEAN, will be there as part of the East Asia Summit that goes on along with the ASEAN meeting. On Myanmar, China has taken a somewhat nuanced position without seeking to isolate the ruling junta with which it has close ties. It has clearly said that it does not condone the violence. At the same time, it has not gone as far as the West or ASEAN countries like Indonesia and Singapore in pointing fingers and has instead said that, you know, this is a domestic issue and there needs to be a common ground between the parties involved in the conflict, basically the NLD and the ruling junta. What we can expect from the Chinese at the ASEAN meeting is they're probably going to say they're hoping for further progress in the talks on the South China Sea Code of Conduct, and they'll probably say that some progress has been made after those talks were virtually put on a standstill, During the pandemic, there's been some movement on on that front, but nothing substantial and concrete, even though they might say that it is moving faster than it actually is. But I think for China, it's very important that ASEAN gets a grip on on the Myanmar situation. They do not want an all-out civil conflict in Myanmar on its borders. There might be significant knock-on effects. It's Yunnan, it's neighbouring Myanmar... Uh, You don't want that kind of trouble spilling over. So it is in China's interest for ASEAN to take a stern position on Myanmar. And and I guess observers will be hoping that whatever escalatory move that ASEAN takes on Myanmar, it has the backing of China. The West definitely will, will back escalatory moves, but the question remains on whether China will or not. And of course, we're coming just weeks after a significant reshuffle of the
1: leadership of Xi Jinping's government, especially in the Foreign Affairs Department, with Xin Gang going up. And I'm guessing if Xi Jinping is not attending this meeting, Li Keqiang might be doing this in one of his final outings.
2: The Chinese Premier is traditionally the person who represents China at the East Asia Summit. But there is no official confirmation of his attendance as yet. I guess the Chinese foreign ministry will, will make that confirmation in the next few days.
1: We'll see how that goes. And of course, as I said, you'll have a very busy week next week. But let's turn to something else that's happening in the background of this ASEAN meeting next week. That's very much in your field of expertise, and that is Malaysian politics and the upcoming national elections in two weeks' time. How much of this is going to affect or impact on the ASEAN meeting and what can you tell us about this coming election?
2: So that's something that we have covered this week. The main effect of the Malaysian election happening now in the same time as the Southeast Asian diplomatic season is the fact that the Malaysian Foreign Minister, Saifuddin Abdullah, is probably gonna sit out these meetings, especially the ASEAN meeting. And it's a pity because of the nine ASEAN countries that, you know, apart from Myanmar, Malaysia has been the most vocal on the Myanmar issue, has been the one that's been pressing for harder policies to compel General Min Lang to come back on the path towards democracy. The language that Saifuddin has used is quite different from his counterparts. He has also been openly engaging with the National Unity Government, which is the shadow administration in Myanmar. If Saifuddin is not there, we probably may not see that tough a stance from the ministers present. Let's hope that's not the case, but usually, at at least in the last 18 months, it's been Malaysia and Indonesia that's been driving the kind of ASEAN response to Myanmar. Saifuddin not there. It's a big loss. That's on the ASEAN front. Probably Malaysia will send a foreign ministry official or a junior minister who is in a caretaker capacity right now ahead of the November 19 election. Let me jump in here because
1: off mic, we were having a discussion and your description of it was... Let's not say the word chaotic, let's say... No,
2: it's chaotic.
1: (laughs) I was going to say dynamic, but sure, chaotic. Yes. So coming on from the 20th Party Congress where there was discussion of, you know, maybe it's time to leave politics after the age of 68, we've got a 97-year-old member of Malaysia's political establishment still exerting some influence.
2: Right. I mean, 97-year-old Mahathir is in, in play right now. But most of the other key players are also in their late 60s or in their 70s. Anwar Ibrahim, who's the leader of the Opposition Pakatan Harapan Alliance, 70 plus. Mohidin Yasin, also leader of one of the major coalitions, also in his 70s. This is a cover story that This Week in Asia did recently about You know, when will these guys, you know, let go and let the younger generation of leaders come forth? I mean, the next generation of guys are not spring chickens. You know, they they are well in their 40s. Some of them are ready to lead. They are clean. They've got the people's support. People like Khairi Jamaluddin or Rafizi Ramli or Nurul Iza Anwar, who's Anwar's daughter. These are all up-and-coming stars in politics in Malaysia. But sadly, they they, they are overshadowed by the, the old men who are still around, including Mahathir, then the older generation of, of Malaysian politicians claim that you know they cannot quite leave the scene yet because the country so badly needs them and needs their leadership. I don't think a lot of Malaysians agree, but that's the nature of Malaysia's deeply feudal party politics.
1: I can only imagine how busy you're going to be, your team's going to be over the next couple of weeks. Bye-bye, Pragas. Thank you very much. Editor of the Asia Desk and, of course, the energy behind This Week in Asia, which you can find on scmp.com. Bye-bye, Pragas. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Candy Wong is a reporter on our political economy desk. Candy, good Morning. Morning. You've been filing some very interesting stories lately that maybe aren't grabbing the front page, but they've got some really interesting details about how things are changing for China's external relationships you know, globally, but of course with the US. Can I start with this issue of Beijing hiring private security firms to look after its interests overseas? Now, this stemmed from a reference you picked up in Xi Jinping's speech at the 20th Party Congress. It was about the Belt and Road. What, what's happening here?
0: Thanks, Jared. Speaking during the 20th Party Congress, actually Xi Jinping said we will strengthen our capacity to ensure overseas security and protect the lawful rights and interests of Chinese citizens and legal entities overseas. Well, actually, China won't use its own army overseas, so private services are the legitimate replacement to do the protection work for the country's global access and its nationals. Speaking of that, Chinese private security companies late commerce compared with those of the United States, Russia and various international firms. So it is a problem of lacking local experience, contacts and acceptance
1: and you say that you know China's a latecomer to this compared to the US and and Russia Russia's got its now infamous Wagner group of you know mercenaries which developed out of a a hospitality company and we of course saw the evolution during the the 90s and 2000s of that company Blackwater from the US it's very interesting that Xi Jinping is pushing the idea of private security firms For the belt and road because if we look at the belt and road projects they are primarily in areas best described as restive such as sri lanka nigeria pakistan but that presence is growing in southeast asia can you tell us more about that
0: such services being used to protect access related to the initiative in southeast asia you're right with the presence in cambodia being particularly pronounced And another example is that after the 2021 coup in Myanmar, protesters in Yangon set fire to Chinese-owned textile factories as punishment for what they saw as Chinese support for the new juncture regime. So the Belt and Road initiative's presence in conflict environments and the contentiousness of this project exposed them to unique dangers, which create a natural market for protection services.
1: As I said, Candy, many of us in the US, Australia... We are familiar with these names, Blackwater with Wagner. We know of other firms, of course, in the UK and Australia, but I had no idea there were so many private security firms in mainland China. How many of them are licensed to work overseas and what kinds of people are being recruited for them?
0: Actually, they have included, and there will be more recruitment of security firms run by ex-People's Liberation Army and ex-Chinese police to provide security for Chinese state-owned enterprises involved in implementing development initiatives, multi-billion dollar programs. Some figures from the Peace Research Institute Oslo, when I talked to them, show that there are already about 5,000 security firms registered in China, employing more than 4 million personnel former members of the People's Liberation Army and the People's Armed Police. About 20 security firms in China are licensed to operate overseas and they employ over 3,000 individual contractors, although the real number is likely to be higher, according to some experts.
1: Well, let's turn to another story reported on this week, you know, a special roundtable meeting in Beijing where officials, quote, went on the offensive with American businesses, but in this case, it's a charm offensive. What's happening here?
0: Right, China's top economic planner, which is the National Development and Reform Commission, held a roundtable discussion with more than 60 American companies in a bid to lure foreign investors and restore confidence in the Chinese market less than two weeks after the 20th Party Congress. American business representatives at the meeting were from U.S. multinational companies, including Amazon, Apple, General Motors, Micron Technology, plus others from like high-end manufacturing, pharmaceuticals, finance, energy, automotive, and entertainment firms. But representatives of American companies said that the story continues to be about China's uncertain business environment caused by zero-COVID policies, the troubled bilateral relationship with the US, and to a lesser extent, rising operation costs and weak domestic demand. And it's kind of a bit of a hard sell to say China is open at the moment, though, When there are videos going global, Foxconn workers jumping fences and walking miles across farmlands to escape zero COVID controls in the closed loop system days ago.
1: I was just thinking that what it must have been like sitting at this round table meeting saying, hey, China's open for business, fully knowing this video of these workers jumping barbed wire fences outside the Foxconn factory and fleeing across fields to get out of this closed loop system on top of. But we've already heard about the intensity of the lockdowns on Shanghai, of increasing controls in Beijing, must have been a very, very tough sell. What are they actually selling in terms of this? these these businesses who are already invested in mainland China? What's what's their selling point?
0: Well, they're still saying that China is a stable investment environment and the determination of China to basically develop high-tech manufacturing, value chains and stuff like that. I mean, this is really the kind of instructions like from the top government officials after the party congress in order to boost confidence of the multinationals, especially with a lot of narratives. Right now we're talking about the confidence is all about the zero covid measures and policies that multinationals basically kind of feel it unsure or uncertain about the Chinese investment environment. So um, there are also some sort of representatives of American companies taught me that as long as, you know, the zero COVID policy is lifted up, the confidence will just shoot back anytime immediately.
1: Well, Candy, we can definitely see just how keen industries markets are to see China reopen. I mean, earlier this week, we saw a massive spike in Chinese stock market, just based upon a unsourced screenshot that purported to say there were moves to open up or drop the zero COVID policies in China. Of course, that hasn't been proven. There's been no official confirmation at all. But just based on that, a massive spike in the market. Let's turn to something else that's an interesting trend, and that is an increase in the international settlement using yuan. You've been talking to economists this week. What have you heard about this?
0: Some people would just say that is that because of more transaction of yuan between China and Russia – When I ask that question to economists, and economists just say that, well, data doesn't really show that kind of trend at the moment. But anyway, it's about a more yuan settlement in Chinese trade. So it means that China's trade with other countries, they may use more yuan in order to settle their transactions
1: and I'll just say that that was one of the big suggestions or predictions just after Russia invaded Ukraine and the west sanctions kicked in and the bans on Russian currency came in there was this prediction that you know Russian companies would be using the yuan to settle to get around these sanctions and and move money around the world but you're hearing this is not the case
0: it's not exactly the case but it's like many other companies actually they were just trying to diversify The currencies that they use in order to do trade transaction, is just because of the geopolitical situation. And the other reason is because of the hedging concerns due to the, you know, changing foreign exchange rate and interest rate.
1: Candy, this is fascinating. And of course, we'll follow your stories on SEMP.com. Can I ask you, what are you working on right now? What's coming up? What can we look forward to from you?
0: I'm always following stories about the and Road Initiative. For example, like how the U.S. is a barrier for China to develop its economic relationship in Iran and other Middle East countries, or how Turkey is in a dilemma to, you know, get money from China to develop infrastructure and simultaneously its alliance with the U.S.
1: And Turkey's story is the story of so many other countries. Economic relationship with either China or the U.S., military relationship with either China or the U.S., Always complicated, always fascinating to read. Candy Wong, thank you very much for your time. will speak to you soon.
0: Thank you, Jerry.
1: That's all for this week's episode. Don't forget, Bhavan and his team will be running hot with analysis and reporting in our This Week in Asia section of scmp.com. And if you want a really good Twitter feed to follow, follow Bhavan Japragas on Twitter. He's at J B H A V A N. J Bhavan. Always good reading. Check it out. And don't forget to keep up with our 24-hour newsroom and bureaus across the world via scmp.com and via Twitter at scmpnews. There will no doubt be some colourful photos of the people attending the Rugby Sevens this weekend. Keep an eye out for that. It's going to be a huge couple of weeks ahead in the sphere of geopolitics. Great to have your company, as ever. We look forward to bringing you quality analysis and quality discussion of all that goes on. Stay safe, stay tuned, Bye for now.